It is a beautiful morning this morning, isn't it? Um, you know, when we came in on Tuesday, it was cloudy and it was rainy, and we were a little worried it was going to be that way all week. Um, it, as it turns out, that cloudy and rainy Malibu is still much prettier than anything Abilene, Texas has to offer. Um, but I'm glad it's cleared up. I'm glad the, the sun is shining and the wildlife is out. We saw a little bunny outside our dorm this morning, saw a few deer up on the hillside. It's just a beautiful place to be, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a great blessing to be here, and that is absolutely the reason to be here. We've got this gorgeous scenery, the ocean in the background. Just everything is fresh and springtimey. The climate actually turned out to be pretty good. Uh, that's the reason to be here this week. Well, it, it's nice. It's a nice place, but I don't know if that's the reason to be here. Surely the reason to be here is to be with people, to see old friends, to make new friends. You know, some people have been coming to this every year for years. Being here is basically just one big family reunion, right? That's the reason to be here. Okay. Surely the reason to be here has to be spiritual. I mean, it's about spiritual renewal. We all go down to the Firestone Fieldhouse. We worship together. There's great singing. We hear some great preaching. We've been going around from place to place and listening to great classes. It's a spiritually renewing week. That has absolutely got to be the real reason to be here this week. Okay, yeah, you have the Jesus answer, the typical Bible class answer. Can it be all of these reasons? No. Why not? Uh, because that's just not how it works. People need sort of one basic reason for doing things. There needs to be a reason that it is about, a reason for doing things. It all comes down to the main thing. Okay, but what if it's a little bit more complicated than that? What if it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that? What if there's more than one way of looking at it? You mean uh, like the right way and the wrong way? <laughs> no, I, I just mean that diff sometimes there are different ways of looking at something. They, these ways may all make sense. They may all be helpful. Uh, there could be more than one reason. There could be more than one way of looking at things. And all of these different reasons need to be thought through. They need to be discussed. I know that that does make things a little bit more complicated, but sometimes things are complicated. Uh, no. Complicated? Complicated's no good. Why not? Complicated does not work. Complicated is no good because people don't like complicated. Okay. I don't like squash, but that doesn't mean that it's not real. Uh, believe <laughs> okay. me, I still have to deal with squash because it's real. Yes, sometimes it does complicate my life, but just pretending that it's not real doesn't actually make it any better. Here's the thing. I'm like a lot of people. I want to avoid complicated. I want to focus in on the main thing, and I want to make that kind of as clear and straightforward as I possibly can and invest myself in that with as much passion as I can. Okay, I get it. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. People love to take really complicated situations and boil them down to something really simple and then beat each other up about it. You know, they've done readability tests on presidential speeches over the years. And uh, in the days of Washington, the president spoke to the people at about the 20th speech grade level. Uh, uh, the Lincoln speeches were at about the 15th grade level. George W. and Obama were about the same at around the 8th or ninth grade level. But these days, most uh, politicians are speaking to pretty much everybody at about the 6th grade level or lower than that. And there's a lot of reasons for that, and some of those reasons are good, but one of the reasons is that people just don't like complicated. I, that's right. That's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, these days, everybody's communicating through Twitter. We're uh, working through our ideas about what life should be like, about the world, about politics, about society through Twitter. We're carrying on these complicated conversations in very simple and straightforward ways. And so, um, if you use the Flesh Kincaid readability test that you were alluding to a minute ago, uh, the conversations that we're all having on Twitter from sort of politicians in office to university professors and everybody else are happening at about the fourth grade level. 
So if it's working that well, as it obviously is, then why do we need uh, anything more complicated than that? Okay, you're saying we're all communicating at about the fourth grade level and that you think that that's a good thing. I, I don't understand that. You know, recent studies have shown that people would rather get paid less to listen to somebody that they agree with than get paid more to listen to somebody who they disagree with. Uh, researchers asked both Obama voters and Romney voters to rate the experience of having to listen to the other side, just listen to them. And they compared that experience to having a tooth pulled. They're calling it motivated ignorance. It doesn't matter how people voted. Generally, people don't want to listen. They don't want to discuss. And they don't particularly want to learn. And they're motivated to stay that way. Uh, and they certainly don't want to entertain the possibility that whoever it is that they disagree with, whoever that is, might actually have something to say. Why is that? Is that just because... We're afraid of things getting too complicated, or maybe we're just afraid that somebody else might not actually be that wrong after all. So that's, that's the world, that's society, that's what's going on, and maybe that's not such a great thing. But thankfully, that's not what happens in the church, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, it's true. Surely, in the church, it would not be the case. I mean, out there in society, we're not surprised that people are going to uh, oversimplify impossibly complicated things into dramatically simplistic caricatures of reality. But in the church, we know better. In the church, we're about the truth. In the church, we're committed to a God whom we believe to be deeper and more complex than we could ever possibly understand. So we would have this sort of automatic reticence to want to oversimplify deep spiritual things because we we know that it can't be that way and certainly as christians who've been charged with loving our neighbors we would be really reluctant to mistreat people and misrepresent people in those ways because we love our neighbors and so just because somebody doesn't agree with me that doesn't mean i'm automatically going to treat them like an enemy although as Christians, what we do with our enemies, supposedly, is to pray for them. Right, yeah. Thankfully, that hasn't gotten into the church Exactly. At all. Yeah. Um, so, really, we're done here. Right, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for being here, yeah. Um, now, welcome to day three of our series. My name is Joel Childers. This is my dad, Jeff. Um, we like talking about these kind of things together. For some reason, they've decided to let us do it in public. Um, but some we're glad you're of, some here. Some of these people have actually come back. <laughs> yeah, I know. They, I'm not sure what's going on there. I wish we had a rewards program or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, this week we're talking about tall tales of a lethal sort. What do we mean by that? Well, our culture has some beliefs, some assumptions, uh, or stories, things that we like to tell ourselves that sink deep down into our consciousness maybe at a subconscious level, and they influence uh, the things that we, we say and the things that we do. Things that are uh, maybe have some truth to them, but really are not completely true. Yeah, exactly. Yesterday, uh, or Monday, or what day was the first day? Wednesday? Yeah, Wednesday, we talked about Wednesday. the tall tale, um, I need to keep my options open. The way that our culture's fear of commitment undermines Christian community. And yesterday, which was Thursday, uh, we talked about the tall tale, you need an upgrade, the way our obsession with new and innovative things can lead us to ignore traditions that are important for our identity. We have these assumptions deep down that shape us. They influence our values, they influence our priorities, the things that we do and say. A lot of times we're not aware of those things very consciously. Uh, they are functioning more at an instinctual level. And so we're not thinking, you know, as, as with the previous two tall tales that you know, I'm committing myself to this. It's just sort of in the air and it becomes a part of what we do. And then we become uh, biased in ways we don't understand. Some of these tall tales that are definitely influential in the culture also become influential in our churches as well. And they're not always healthy. That's why we call them uh, tall tales of a lethal sort. Um, but um, today, the topic is the main thing is. 
dot, dot, dot. And Joel and I got in such a fight over several times about what the main thing would be, we decided just to have an ellipsis. <laughs> because right. if you know where that key is on the keyboard, it's really easy just to type an ellipsis, you know, and there it is. But basically what we're talking about is this tendency that we see out there in the culture, and we know how badly this happens sometimes, for people to oversimplify things and even to overreact to each other about those things. That happens out there, but it also happens in our churches as well. This urge to take things that might be very, very complicated and oversimplify them so that we can manage them easily, or when we overreact to people of good conscience who might think and believe differently. Yeah, like when I say the main thing is to have a personal relationship with the Lord. The main thing is to be part of a church. Or maybe the main thing is that we make outsiders feel welcome. The main thing is that we worship in a way that honors God. No, the main thing is that you're saved by grace. The main thing is obedience. Okay, I see how this works. The main thing is me getting to heaven. The main thing is that we join God's work of peacemaking right here in this world. Or when I say the main thing is instrumental worship, well, then if somebody has this view on instrumental worship or that view, well, then that's a deal breaker for me. Right. Or their view on women's roles. Or refugees. Or um, how they voted in the last election. Or LGBTQ issues. Or whether you have recycling bins in the youth wing. <laughs> right. Uh, like the main thing in Christianity is that you believe all the right things. No, no, no. The main thing is how you feel. You've got to feel this thing deep down. No, the main thing is what Christians do. Yep. And uh, it's not that some of these things are unimportant. It's not that these things don't matter. Some of them matter more than others. And it's certainly not the case that Christians shouldn't be discussing these things and maybe honestly arguing about these things uh, with some, some passion because some of them really do matter. But often in the process, we end up forgetting what the truly main things are, at least according to the Bible and the Christian tradition. And we do that for the sake of keeping things simple. And we might also then sort of elevate this thing that we focused on as our God. Because these things, some of these things may be important. Some of these things are less important for sure but not a single one of them is God. None of them is God. And my position on them is not God, and my understanding of it is not God. That doesn't mean it's not important, and that doesn't mean God doesn't favor some things over other things, but that's a little different, because what we sometimes do is actually treat these things, these main things, as idols that we elevate. And that becomes what it is that we serve. And... When other people don't serve the idol that we've elevated, sometimes we bash them to pieces because of that. Yeah, so why are we so quick to buy into this myth? I get that it's in the culture, but if we're the church, we're a different community, a countercultural community. Why is it so easy for us as the church to buy into this myth? Well, like we're saying in this whole series, right, it's... it's, it's uh, it's partly in the culture, it's in the air, to want to do this, kind of keep things simple and manageable, and then our competitive natures come out very quickly. Uh, I think we, we pick it up in those ways. But also, there's something powerful about saying, the most important thing is, and then put an ellipsis there, right? There's something powerful about saying that, and it's possible that we're tempted to want to talk that way when we talk maybe more than we should, kind of making those absolute claims about a lot of different things um, because we're sort of tempted to talk that way so, and therefore to think that way too. But there's another reason why we're prone to do this, even in the church, and that's because Christianity really is about some main things and uh, that there are these core things and foundational things and central things. And sometimes the church forgets those things, and it needs to be reminded, and a lot of Scripture is reminding uh, the people of God about those things. So, like, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he says, 
what I passed on to you, I received as of first importance. You know, first, that's one. That seems pretty high up on the list of, right? Then he talks about the story of Jesus coming and dying on the cross and being resurrected uh, on the third day. This is a main thing for Paul. Uh, or, uh, as he says, we heard the other night when Don McLaughlin was preaching, about the confession. To Paul, it's very important that you say Jesus is Lord. This is a big thing. It's a foundational thing. It's a central thing. Or take the parts of the Bible that sound like they're sort of summarizing main thing kinds of things, like Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. Um, that was really important to Israel. They recited it a lot. And what did Jesus set alongside it as commandment number two? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right. Everything hangs on these two commandments. That sounds like he's saying there's some, there's some main thing thinking going on here. Um, or in Micah 6, 8, which is another great summary, right? What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is foundational. This is central. Or in Matthew 23 and 23, when Jesus says that there are weightier matters of the law, heavier things, things that matter more. So in Christianity, there are some things that are core, other things are built around them, or central, and other things kind of take their place around those central things. Everything's not equal. Or they're foundational. Um, other things are built on these things. And this is an important part of Christianity, to kind of have that instinct to be asking yourself, well, what is the main thing? What is the main thing? And you keep sort of coming back to those main things. And sometimes God's people forget and they let other things start carrying too much weight and become weightier matters. And so Scripture calls God's people back to what some of these main things are. So this, this sort of instinct of wanting to think in terms of the main thing is, is, is partly a kind of native Christian instinct. Right, like in the church at Corinth where there's people who are focusing too much on certain specific spiritual gifts at least that's what Paul tells them and he says okay I'm not saying those spiritual gifts aren't important I'm just saying that the main thing is is love yeah or like when the Pharisees of Jesus day are working very hard to calculate exactly how much of their mint and dill and cumin to to tithe but they're not putting nearly as much effort in working out uh, how to help the lepers or how to bring relief to the prostitutes. Uh, so he reminds them of the weightier matters of the law to keep them on track. Yeah, but he does say they should have been practicing the latter, tithing the cumin and dill and chili powder or whatever, without neglecting <laughs> chili powder? Uh, the former. <laughs> uh, the weightier matters that you were talking about, justice, mercy, faithfulness. First of all, chili powder is not a thing that occurs in nature. I just want to be, <laughs> let's just be clear about this, okay? What they're teaching you at that school. <laughs> but he, he does remind them of the weightier matters of the law. And so he's not dropping one side of this so that he can just hang on to the other side. He's holding on to both sides. Yeah, that's the thing. I think we're much more likely to drop one thing in favor of another thing more quickly maybe than Jesus himself does. And it's actually kind of in a way, sort of grounded on one of the main things, which has to do with the confession that Jesus Christ is both human and divine, which means Christianity often tends to make a both-and grab rather than an either-or grab with a lot of things. But we'll come back to that here in a minute. But a good example might be the story of story people love to read and, and, and think about, uh, about the woman caught in adultery, <coughs> uh, which is placed there uh, in most later manuscripts between John 7 and 8. That gets us into some details we probably don't want to get into at this point. But um, there in John 7 and 8, the woman caught in adultery. And you know how they bring her to Jesus. They're kind of wanting to trap Jesus and all of that. But they have got stones. They're ready to stone this woman. They're hoping Jesus will mess up uh, on this test. And so what Jesus does is he pushes back a little by getting them to do some soul-searching about their own lives, their own commitments, their own sins. 
and it works, right? I mean, they, they drop their rocks and, uh, and they back off. Um, some people read this story, which is a great story, and focus on how that Jesus rescues this woman and says, neither do I condemn you, right? So this is a story about how Jesus doesn't judge people, except the judgy people. Right. He's yeah. right. He's judging the judgy people. But yeah, Jesus doesn't judge people. But others say, hold on. Hold on just a minute. I mean, Jesus tells her what? Go and sin no more. Okay. So is this a story about getting in the face of hypocrites and trying to get them to quit judging, to do a little soul searching on their own? lives, or is this a story about Jesus rescuing a woman from a kind of lifestyle and more or less insisting that she not follow that lifestyle anymore? When we say, go and sin no more, and that sounds very kind of polite and gentle and very religious-y or something, but I could also say, go, and will you please stop being immoral? Uh, And that's just as fair to the Greek text and the tone of the story. So how I see this story may say more about me than it does about Jesus, uh, especially if I'm sort of on one side of that or another. Is the gospel saying God loves you and forgives you and God is slow to judge? Or is the gospel saying repent and change your life? Well, if I want to turn the volume up on one side of that and turn the volume down on another side of that, there is a good chance this tall tale we're talking about is having an impact on me because the Bible does both, the gospel requires both, and healthy Christian community needs both too. Yeah, but it's really hard to attend to both of those, and it's even harder to do both of them well. Often it's a whole lot easier to just focus on one and kind of forget the other one. You know, when I was growing up, the gospel message I heard more often than any other in church was that side, God loves you and forgives you. Uh, You know, I would sit in Bible class or at youth camp, and I would hear someone tell me and tell all my friends, God loves you for you, it's all about grace and forgiveness, and you don't have to feel guilty about anything that you've done. And that was a good, true gospel message, and I'm grateful for how much I had that message instilled in me at an early age. But I know myself, and I know most of my friends, and if I can be honest, we probably could have used a little bit more of the repent and change your life message. I'll because, yeah, because we didn't hear that very often. And it's not that the message that God loves us and forgives us isn't true or isn't important to talk about. It's just that we mostly already believed that message. And a lot of times we were being taught as if we were all trending towards some sort of dangerous legalism when really we were probably trending kind of the opposite direction a little bit. The teachers were saying the main thing is that you're saved by grace. And maybe that's because when they were young, they heard the main thing is obedience and following all the rules. Uh, And they didn't hear about much grace but they traded in that one-sided message that they heard when they were younger for another one-sided message. Only the problem was their audience, me and my friends, we weren't people who needed to be rescued from the rules. In fact, we probably needed a few more rules. (laughs) Well, let's talk about that more later, but we'll talk about that (laughs) more privately. I'm not saying more rules from you. I'm (laughs) saying more rules from the church. Yeah, that's... (laughs) All right, fair enough. Well, should our message be about God's grace or should it be about Jesus' high standards of discipleship? This is a false choice. It's a false choice because the gospel is about both. In the gospel, both are true. And it's just another version of a lot of false choices that tend to emerge about what the main thing is or how things work. Uh, Does God do everything or is what I do something that counts, for example? Um, or uh, does God make all the decisions, 
or do I make decisions too? There are all kinds of dichotomies that we set up, which are really just versions of a question about the incarnation of Jesus Christ deep down. In, terms, in Christian terms, how we make sense of some of those things gets bound up in a confession that Jesus Christ is human and divine. These are like asking, is Jesus human or divine? Because a lot of the both-and answers that Christianity tends to keep on the table are tied up in this one central mystery that was difficult for early Christians and continues to be difficult. Is Christianity about spiritual things, or is Christianity about things on this earth? Is this about how we live here, or is this about heaven? Do I make all my own decisions, or is God in charge of things? And it's just way easier to answer on one side of those dichotomies than another than it is to hold together the tensions of the Christian confession about how all these things get kind of tied in together and bound together. The either-or is a lot easier to deal with. Uh, And that was true back in the early days. There were unorthodox groups, for example, who uh, they just wanted to play to Jesus' human side or to Jesus' divine side. You see this in 1 John. 1 John, when you read that, it's clear that in that community, the author's writing to, there were people who think you shouldn't talk about Christ being human or fleshly. That is not a good thing. It was hard for them to kind of imagine it that way and understand it that way. For them, divinity can't be fleshly. For them, spiritual things can't be physical things. Heavenly and earthly things don't intersect, etc. So they were denying that Christ came in the flesh. And the author says they are antichrist. You have to confess that Christ came in the flesh. This is one of those non-negotiable main things. And it wasn't just that they were wrong, like inaccurate wrong, but also when you read the book, you see that one of the consequences of this is that this group of people didn't understand how important fleshly needs are to a spiritual life. And so they weren't helping those who were in need because their focus was so much on the divinity of Jesus and and what all of that means. And so 1 John says they're antichrist. But it's because they were playing more to one side than to another. Yeah, and that brings me to one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it doesn't often do the either or. It usually does the both and. You know, Martin Luther, the the great reformer, he loved talking about Paul in Romans. He loved talking about being saved by grace. Now, the book of James, he wasn't really as much of a fan of the whole uh, faith without works is dead thing. He didn't really fit his grace-only agenda. But if we're true to the New Testament and we take the New Testament as a whole, it really helps to balance these things out. Yeah, he said James was a right straw epistle. Right? Yeah. I mean, as far as he was concerned, there's no point in reading it. But at least he was honest about that. It was e- at least he was honest about how you know biased he was. Um, well, that's uh, one of the reasons this actually happens so much because we pretty much always need fixing. I don't know, I mean, I don't know your church situation or your spiritual life, but I see this a lot in my life and in the churches I've been associated with over the years. We, we pretty much always need uh, some correction. God's people tend to go maybe too far one way or tend to go maybe too far another way. Um, that happens as a kind of regular thing all the time. Uh, or maybe we need to work on something that we've forgotten. We need to be corrected about an overemphasis or maybe to call ourselves out on something we've pushed too far, especially when it, it hurts or injures or exploits or forgets something else altogether. Um, uh, you know, yesterday we were talking about tradition with the you need an upgrade tall tale, and that, that fits this very well that there was this, you know, reaction to tradition, and so, eh, tradition's not so good, and we turn tradition into a four-letter word, and you've got to get rid of tradition, and it's sort of an overreaction, and now we're seeing more and more people interested in cultivating thoughtful practices, which are traditions, of course, because they've been, they've been missing that. Um, so, to take the example you just mentioned a minute ago, you may have had uh, people like me, Bible teachers and preachers and maybe others who were reacting to legalism and reacting to works righteousness 
by emphasizing very strongly grace, salvation by grace through faith. The problem is that since, especially since the Protestant Reformation, we have become experts at doing this. Um, Every generation or two, we'll see some things maybe that are sort of off base or out of kilter and then push back against that. Like Luther was doing and a lot of other Reformation leaders uh, over against the abuses of the church in the late Middle Ages. So they're kind of pushing back against that. Um, the problem is that we get fixated on one thing, and especially Protestantism lets this happen, and I think our culture lets this happen uh, because we're so, so good at thinking in terms of branding and specializing and carving out market niches and that kind of thing. We, we get so fixated on one thing that that becomes the thing that we're about uh, the thing we're talking about, the thing we're always sort of focused on, and it becomes the litmus test of whether you're, you're doing it right or not doing it right. Instead of uh, maybe striking a better balance, uh, we tend to push back so hard that our whole identity becomes this one thing. Right, and then we become the church who does baptism the right way, or we're the progressive gender roles church, or we're the casual worship church, or we're the church that accepts you just as you are, or we're the church that tells it like it is. Yeah, and I think God uses all of that. I don't think, sure. I, I think, you know, in the, in the midst of our occasional mistakes and overemphases and not getting everything right all the time and being perfectly balanced, or to put it differently, in the middle of not being God, <laughs> uh, we find ourselves much in need of God's mercy and his grace. And, I, and, and when people of good conscience and commitment trying to serve the Lord and, and do what's right and to correct imbalances, like maybe an overemphasis on works righteousness, uh, are, are, are doing this maybe in ways that aren't always as, as thoughtful or will create some more problems later on. I think God works with that. I don't think he abandons us in that. But we're, we're getting to the point as these cycles keep spinning out and things are moving so fast that we're uh, so obsessed with branding ourselves or maybe with carving out a market niche or we become so issue-driven uh, about issues that we think are the important issues in the church or maybe issues that the society is telling us are the important issues. We become so sort of fixated on those and myopic about those that it really can hurt our witness in the world. Um, but it also can create these sort of internal problems too because we tend to kind of go back and forth. It's not really a pendulum. It's like not like, okay, if you do, do it this way for a while, you're definitely going to do it this other way for a while. But there is this sort of rhythm of reactivity to all this in the history of the church. So, I mean, to illustrate, in a lot of churches of Christ 30 or 40 years ago, there might have been a heavy emphasis on Bible knowledge, right? Knowing the content of the scriptures. And that's still an emphasis maybe in a lot of places. Um, that was the main thing. If you knew exactly what the Bible said, people asked you questions, you could answer those questions. If you could quote memory verses, you would get a star. You know, if you could beat whatever the church was down the road at Bible Bowl, then uh, that's what got you patted on the back. And that's not a terrible emphasis. I happen to be a fan of the Bible, more or less, you know, so this knowing the Bible, I think, is a, is a good thing. But um, that does leave some things out. And so uh, people uh, get kind of hungry because, as it turns out, we need more than just knowledge of Scripture to be really kind of fully centered spiritual beings. Um, there are a lot of, lot of things that maybe leaves out, and so we saw reactions to that. And you can look in the last few decades and see those reactions playing out as people are um, wanting to reclaim the emotion of being a follower of Jesus, wanting to reclaim the interpersonal aspects of a real relationship with God that's a personal relationship. Worship renewal took off, and, and more, more sermons were about uh, a personal relationship with the Lord rather than squaring up your doctrine in a precise and scientific way. Youth weren't doing Bible bowls so much, but maybe they were hosting uh, praise camp concerts, right? And they weren't necessarily being patted on the back for getting the Bible right, but it was more, uh, they might get pat, patted on the back if they gave an honest and sincere testimony, you know? 
uh, where they open up and they tell you what they're really feeling and what it's like. They might even misquote scripture, but we don't care because, you know, they're, they're being sincere. And there's this move to sort of reclaim some of these things that we felt maybe were missing. But instead of holding on to those earlier strengths, maybe some of the, the positive things of uh, that past, and then enriching them with new things we were learning, I think what often happens is, in these reactions, is we tend to take for granted the things that we already know and start emphasizing other things that we feel need to be brought into play. And before you know it, um, shrugging off things that you have, now you're left with another thing that's just the main thing and sort of the only thing and the fixation thing rather than the one before. And so you really, it's not actually different in that regard. You've just sort of changed what the thing is. But what, what if we had programs that, that had uh, rich worship and wonderful opportunities for authentic testimony, uh, but also uh, really cared about uh, serious biblical content and that, and that Christians could be uh, doctrinally savvy too. Why, why, why can't we do all those things? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that sounds great. It's hard to do. Like we mentioned, it's hard to hang on to both sides of a lot of these issues. And I've seen this swing continue. Th these trends continue in the last few years. You know, lately, the swing in a lot of our churches has been towards social justice. I think we saw how the church could be too focused internally. We could saw how the church could be too focused on Bible knowledge or even on worship renewal, on things that were just serving itself, it seemed. And we realized, you know what? The Bible actually seems to care quite a bit about caring for the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. You know, that seems to be something that Jesus is pretty concerned with. You know, in Luke 4, Jesus says that the Spirit sent him to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the captives and sight to the blind. So the church maybe needs to be a little bit more focused on that. That's kind of how we felt. It, Matthew 25 says that we will be judged based on whether we gave thirsty people water, based on whether we visited prisoners, based on whether we clothed the naked. It seems like that maybe is one of the main things that we were ignoring a little bit too much. And so we've swung back towards focusing on that, which is a good thing. But I know plenty of teenagers who probably wouldn't be able to tell you why social justice was important for the Christian life. They wouldn't be able to tell you why it was Im important to care about others other than maybe some loose idea that it's just the right thing to do. That's kind of what the culture is telling them anyway, so maybe that's the only place they're getting that. Um, and they'd have a hard time explaining why or how Christian ministry is any different from secular social justice. They wouldn't be able to explain why uh, Mother Teresa would say that what she was doing with the poor on the streets of Calcutta was different from social work. And they'd have an even harder time explaining why it might be important to their mission of social justice to say, read their Bible or gather with other Christians on Sunday morning. And I get it, because we might say that we'd really rather have kids who can't quote scripture, but they do care about loving and serving people than kids who can quote scripture really well, but aren't interested in serving people. I, I get that we might say that, but Jesus actually does both of those things. And in discipleship, we can't do one without the other. Those things can't be separated from each other. Yeah, I think in much the same way that the humanity and divinity of Jesus can't be separated, uh, there's, a, there's a Christian way of seeing the world that is interested in being in the whole world that God created as a good world that comes from the one God. And therefore, it wants to gather up all the things into its Christianity, into its belief, into its practice, so that individual Christians, and especially the church as a whole, embodies all the things that God cares about and uses all the resources that he provides, in fact, needs all of those resources in order to be as true to its mission as it possibly can. But there's a long list of these sort of false dichotomies that we encounter in our lives and in the church. Yeah, you know, is the main thing grace or obedience? Is the main thing uh, social justice or discipleship? 
Now, there's a long list of these things, and these are probably not some of the most inflammatory things, the ones we're talking about now, um, but it might be a good idea to start with some of the things that are not the most inflammatory uh, to kind of get into this and to begin developing a sensitivity to my instinct to overgeneralize, to oversimplify, and of course to cast others in the darkest possible light might be a good place to start picking up those instincts in issues that are not, you know, as automatically just really hot fire controversial. Um, so what's another one? We can ask, so is the church uh, to be mission-oriented, focused on outsiders? Or is the main thing for the church to be about community, focused more internally? See, it would be a lot easier if it's just one or the other. <laughs> yes, it would be. You know, we can say that church is about community, that anyone is welcome to join, sure, but we as the church are going to be about doing things that build up that community. The Bible talks a lot about the need for the building up of the body of Christ, and we can, we can say that that's where our focus is going to be, and we're just going to be a community of people who love each other really well. And other people will see that, and they'll want to be a part of it, and we'd love to have them. But when we gather, we're mostly going to be focused on things that build us up um, so that we can be more the community that God has called us to be. I think that sounds pretty good. But we could also say, no, the church is about outreach. The gospel is about evangelism. Uh, and it's about serving others. We should be knocking on doors and inviting people to church. And when we gather on Sunday morning, our primary concern should be making everybody feel welcome, making everybody feel included, not making sure that nobody feels uncomfortable or like an outsider. We should be emptying ourselves for the outsider and the stranger. That's where our budgets and our energies should all be focused. Yeah, well, the thing is, you know, I could take one of those or the other of those, and they're probably, it's not like they're just two positions on these things, right? But I could take these, and I could fire off a lot of proof texts. You know, I could fire off a lot of proof texts from Scripture that would say the church really does need to be attending to its inner life, and it's not going to be able to be the church without attending seriously, consciously, every week, deliberately to its inner life. But I can also fire off a lot of proof texts that say, well, the church should really be about pouring out its life for other people. It's not hard to find both of these things in the Bible. Right, and it's not hard to find both of these things in our communities as well. You know, my generation has gotten pretty fed up, I would say, with the ways that we've seen some churches pretty much just focused on serving themselves. But some of my favorite memories from church growing up are things that were internally and communally focused. You know, when I was growing up at our church, we went to family camp a couple times a year. We went down to a camp on the Frio River, and we would hike and canoe and play games. And outsiders, people that weren't in the community, were certainly welcome, but that time was mostly just focused internally. It was focused on building relationships within our church family. It was focused on the people who were already committed and already invested. Uh, but I have relationships from that time and from those family camps that never would have flourished if we hadn't taken the time to focus on building them. And I have memories with people from those family camps that I will carry for years, and we will have connection with each other for years because we took that time to focus on being a family, a church family, together. But if all we do as a community is family camp, well, then we're more of a social club than we are a church. You know, if all we do is focus on the insiders, we're not really fulfilling Christ's commission to reach the lost. And we aren't imitating Jesus if we just serve ourselves all the time. But, but at the same time, we have to ask ourselves, well, what kind of community are we inviting outsiders into? And I was at a mission, on a mission trip a few years ago with a bunch of high schoolers working at a VBS, and we were teaching them Bible stories, but our main goal was just modeling a Christian life for these kids who may not have seen it before. But we had so much infighting and contention among ourselves that we weren't actually modeling for them a life that was any different than the one that they see anywhere else. We needed some time doing insider work 
building ourselves up before we could be effective at reaching outsiders. We needed to treat the church a little bit more like a lab or a gym where we could learn skills that we needed to live right and to serve on the outside. In, in high school, I went on another mission trip to New Mexico, and we were roofing a house. And let me tell you, it's a lot easier to spend a week on a hot roof in New Mexico with people that you get along with. Um, it's not easy to uh, relate to people when you're doing hard labor and work if you don't know those people very well. And um, we'd already spent a lot of time together as a family, as insiders, and so we knew each other fairly well. We knew who had what skills that would be useful. We knew who was serious and who was sarcastic. We knew who was most likely to fall off the roof or <laughs> who was most likely to get pushed off the roof. And um, <laughs> that was because we had spent time building ourselves up. We wouldn't have been as effective at our ministry if we hadn't done that. Um, and I told you the other day, uh, for those of you who are here, about the practice we had after mission trips of washing each other's feet. That wasn't an internally focused practice. It was focused on insiders. But it was also focused on celebrating the work that we did for outsiders and preparing us for more work in the future. We, we want to be like the early church, the early church at its best. And everybody talks about you know, how amazing the early church was, how much impact it made on the world, how it grew in these astonishing ways in the early centuries before the time of the Emperor Constantine. Scholars of early Christianity talk about that early church having uh, what's called a, a, a complexio oppositorum. And this is going to be like your Latin phrase for the morning, right? I know it's just uh, 8.30, but well, it's a, we're getting closer to 9.30 now, <laughs> but complexio oppositorum. That just means... Uh, a complex of oppositions, kind of a bundle of contradictions almost. Because in the early church, you know, they kind of had it all. Now sometimes, and this is a part of that rhetorical problem we were talking about a minute ago, we like to emphasize one thing for the sake of another, but, and to kind of make our point and to advocate for that thing. But that's difficult to do with early Christianity. Early Christianity had fishermen and working class people Early Christianity had university professors, people like Dionysius, Areopagite, scholars like Paul, origin of Caesarea, and so on. It wasn't just one or the other. Early Christianity reached out to women on the margins and slaves. Early Christianity was a place where you could experience rich, textured worship ritual that was powerful and emotional. Early Christianity was a place where you could have deep interpersonal relationships with people who were united in their service of God. This is the complexio oppositorum I'm talking about. If you want to be like the early church, you kind of have to do it all, or at least kind of try to do it all. And there was something about that, that balance and that correctiveness. It is not legit to say, well, let's remember the early church was all, you know, just um, uneducated people. No, that's not right. That's false. That's a tall tale thing. They had very educated people and who wrote things that we're still reading because they were very educated people. They had lots of different kinds of people, and they were engaged in lots of different kinds of activities uh, and kind of tying them all together in much the same way uh, Jesus himself did. Um, and to, but to do that, you have to struggle to embody all of those things, and you really have to be careful about when you see that something is missing or needs to be refreshed or needs to be advocated for, not falling prey to the cultural tendency to advocate for a thing only because you're able to throw something else under the bus. That catches you in this sort of trap. Well, we don't want to be the people who do blank and then we're, because we're the people who do this other thing. Well, of course, if blank is something evil and sinister, I'd prefer that you not be people who do that. But, you know, well, we're not just the people who focus on learning the Bible because we care about your personal relationship with the Lord. Or that kind of dichotomy, that way of talking about things and advocating for something uh, out of an instinct to correct actually creates this weirdness that is not like the early church, which was really doing it all. So what are some ways, just wrapping this up, what are some ways that we can uh, recover from the impact of these tall tales so that we're healthier churches. 
Well, like we've been saying all week, this isn't a series of how-to steps. This is digging into some things that are pretty deep, instincts, assumptions, just reflecting on them. So if we can, uh, you know, get you to walk out at the end of this, just be thinking and just be, just be talking and having conversation about it, then that's, uh, that's successful. I think just being alert to this is a helpful thing, just being alert that we, we're prone to overreact. And uh, maybe we need to be a little more alert to that, especially when we're in the midst of our, our knee-jerk reactions to things. Uh, or that we may, be, may this have this tendency to take for granted whatever we have. That's what was going on with teachers like us and preachers like us who were um, advocating grace over against legalism, not emphasizing practices, but something else, because we were taking a lot for granted. And uh, we thought, oh, well, that's already there. We just need to tweak it and fix it. But what actually happens is when you stop talking about and trying to cultivate those practices, you lose them altogether, and, uh, which sets up this sort of counter-reaction. So just being alert and honest, I think, is important. Another thing is uh, just to stay open to the full witness of Scripture. I mean, this is not magic. This is just, okay, how about we read the Bible and read all of it? And, uh, you know, if I'm an advocate for social justice, it's awesome that I want to live in Matthew 25 and Amos, but maybe I should read Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians as well. You know, it's just stay open to the whole Bible and don't make the whole Bible about the thing that I'm advocating because here's the deal about the Bible. The Bible canonizes diversity. This is why Martin Luther didn't like James because it didn't fit the agenda. The Bible canonizes more diversity than we tend to allow in our churches and in our agendas. So those passages of Scripture that you kind of don't like sometimes, they are there to complicate your favorites. They are there to complicate the ones that you do like very much. And so spending a little more time with them and wrestling with them is, uh, I think, helpful. Next, kind of thirdly, do an audit. We were talking about auditing yesterday when it comes to our traditions and habits. But it's gonna audit my life and audit what's happening in the life of my church. Sit back and ask the questions. What are the things that always get emphasized? What are the things that always come to the top of the agenda? And especially if there are things that nobody really seems to question. That's interesting. Uh, what are the things that uh, are being left out, maybe? When somebody says something, and I find myself saying, well, okay, yes, but, what is on the other side of that but? You know, that, that often says a lot about what my bias is. If I'm always having to say, yeah, but don't forget this thing. And, and it's good for me to say that, but I need to be listening to other people say it, too. And this means some of your best teachers will be the people who bring up these things, one of the best ways, and this is actually a practical step as well in a sense, one of the best ways to heighten our sensitivity to this is to listen to other people. Yeah, um, and that means spending time together. It means praying together. It means working alongside each other. It means building up a community of people who love each other. And this brings up a big one because uh, we often don't just create idols out of our pet obsessions but we tend to, to sort of demonize the people who don't share those same obsessions. Uh, and this is an attitude thing that I think we can work on. See, when I encounter somebody who sees something differently than I do, I shouldn't automatically assume the worst or try to explain to them why they're wrong. I just need to sit down and do some listening first. And, and this is tough. It takes patience. It takes caring a little bit more about a relationship with somebody than about winning the argument. Too often, though, we put our, our pet idols, our main things, above caring about other people. Um, you know, we have to understand that people are created in the image of God and that other people have things to offer us that we cannot offer ourselves. You know, when Martin Luther King talked about the difficulty of forgiveness, he said, we must recognize that the evil deed of the enemy neighbor, the thing that hurts, never quite expresses all that he is. He's saying that other people have these main things and, and that's how we view them. We view them through their main things and through our main things, but that doesn't express the whole of a human person. 
We can't demonize each other just because we don't agree. And so one of the steps we can take is just being more confessional about the ways we uh, mistreat other people because we're viewing them through the lens of these main things. Yeah, so when you have people who say, wait, we've got to remember that the church is about pouring out its life into the world, yeah, you need to hold on to those people. And the person who instinctually says, yeah, I feel like we need to, but we need to be building up the church. And they're kind of representing a different approach to those questions of how we're going to spend our energy, how we're going to spend our budget. Those are people to hold on to as well and listen to. And what you really need are those rare people who are gifted at bringing all those people together for conversations together. Now, at the end of the day, we can't do everything. At the end of the day, it's really not about, well, you've got to have 50% of this and you've got to have 50% of that. Uh, sometimes there are things we're going to move in the direction of that are quite different than maybe what we've done before, and that may be the right move. But those people who will say, yeah, but I, there's something, I feel like we're missing something. Those are people who can help us understand maybe what the, the risks are moving in a particular direction, and in particular, what we might be giving up, and therefore, what do we need to find a way to compensate for that? Are there some ways to make sure that we don't forget that strength? It won't be enough just to kind of tip the hat to it. You actually have to engage in some of the same practices that would reinforce that strength, that would cultivate that thing, if you really want to keep it on the table and not end up in this sort of massive overreaction to things. In other words, maybe we could practice an Ephesians 4 model of church, right? Where you've got all these different people who are gifted by the generous, gracious God in these many different ways, and as they work together, as different parts of the body, bone and sinew and muscle, the whole body is growing up into him who is the head. And it's doing it precisely because you've got these different people with different gifts and capacities working alongside each other, generating the friction that body parts do when they're working alongside each other, but in that, growing up in, um, in Christ. So uh, when I'm the sort of person who is always thinking about how we need to be reaching out more to the needy, the sort of person who pops up and says, I feel like we're not attending enough to the inner life of the church. They're not necessarily saying that because they hate outsiders. There's kind of an instinct being spoken there that maybe is worth listening to, especially when we have good conscienced people who uh, are really uh, in pursuit of God. But sometimes I just treat that person as the enemy. Uh, as stupid or as evil. Uh, now, it's not necessarily the case that they're right. They may be wrong. But even people who are wrong, you don't treat with hatred. That's, that's, that's not the gospel. Yeah, and even people are wrong who are wrong are still people that we can learn from. There's mm. still people that we can gain insights about God, about the church, about ourselves from there's a good chance that the people who we disagree with are the ones that are going to help us be more true to the fullness of God. We have been, we've just been holding forth here this morning, and it's been so powerful, so impressive. People are just streaming in. Come <laughs> yeah, on in right. and have a seat, you know. Yeah. Or some of them might be finding a place for Scott McKnight. I'm not sure. <laughs> but uh, one or the other. One definition, a longstanding definition for heresy is the emphasis on one truth to the exclusion of other truths. That's, you see that in the history of Christianity all the time. And it's partly because God is big, the universe is big, Christianity is making a big grab, a big grab, much bigger than we tend to want to make. Consequently, we would prefer to boil it down to one main thing. This tall tale in our culture, that there is this one main thing, is like a heresy factory, you know, because it's constantly pushing us to overgeneralize, constantly pushing us to oversimplify, and constantly pushing us to demonize other people who think differently, um, regardless of whether they're wrong or right or what decisions we need to go with. Obviously, treating people that way is not the gospel. Yeah, it, it's, it's not easy, like you're saying. It is a challenging, difficult thing. And all of these tall tales that we've been talking about this week are challenging things to wrestle with. But 
if I can say one of the main things that we were hoping to do this week is just get us to start thinking and talking about the ways that these deep beliefs, these underlying assumptions we have influence us. And there's a lot more we could have talked about. There's a lot of things that we didn't get to that we wish we could have uh, addressed. You're welcome to come by our house, and we're happy to talk with you about any of them. Uh, we can lecture you for hours about uh, all the other tall tales. Um, but we really just hope that this is a conversation starter. We can talk about these tall tales, these things that we believe uh, underneath everything.